This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, fresh polling and the hot-button issues, the air show back in the skies, how one organization is supporting vulnerable Afghans. But we begin with knowing your rights. More and more employers are implementing vaccine mandates, including federal and provincial governments, private businesses, Canada's biggest banks, police services, airlines, sports venues and sports teams, and live theater, just to name a few who in the past two weeks have joined the growing list. These vaccine mandates require that all employees be fully vaccinated or else. Questions. Do employers have the right to impose such mandates? Do employees have the right to refuse to be vaccinated? And what is the or else? Manisa Sheikh is an employment lawyer with the law firm Levitt Sheikh. Welcome to the feed, Manisa. So let's get right to it. Why does an employer have the right to impose mandatory vaccination policies? An employer has the right to run their business in a manner that they see fit. In the face of this pandemic, unfortunately, that now includes keeping other employees safe, which are legal obligations under the occupational health and safety legislation, and also to keep clients and consumers safe. And so now, because the um, vaccine, or pardon me, the virus has been as rampant as it has, and because we've now um, received, you know, significant directive from the government at all levels that vaccination, although not mandatory at this stage, is something that should be mandatory. We have employers who are now um, understanding that they have an obligation to keep everyone safe, and that includes mandating the vaccine, which we've seen so much of these past few days. Do companies, though, face legal hurdles by imposing these vaccine mandates? They absolutely do. I mean, the law in this area um, is changing, and we see all of these changes um, coming down the pipeline fast and furious. So they have the right to implement a policy that is reasonable. So if your entire workforce is remote and working from home, it wouldn't make a lot of sense that you require mandatory vaccines in order to work because your workforce is predominantly at home. So those employers, oh, those employees, pardon me, would have a very good argument in saying that, well, this isn't reasonable at all. But for an employer who is finding it difficult um, with a workforce that is working within the bricks and mortars uh, to, you know, continue social distancing or, um, you know, provide protective gear. It is entirely reasonable for those employers, both in the private and public sector, which we have seen so much of, uh, respond by saying that, no, for us, the mandatory vaccination policy is reasonable because the vaccine, you know, uh, because the vaccine essentially is going to keep everybody safe and our clients and consumers safe as well. So the question, the elephant in the room is this, can an employee refuse to be vaccinated or show proof of vaccination? In other words, can they say no? Can they refuse? And if it's no vax, is it no pay? So a typical frustrating uh, lawyer's response Um, It's legal-ish, which means that if your employer says that you have an obligation to become to be vaccinated, absent any sort of medical issue, which is protected um, under human rights legislation, or a religious issue. And I think it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks where, you know, we see people come together, cobble together employees about why 
from a religious standpoint, they may not be able to, you know, they may not able, they're not able to adhere to the policy. But if you are not able to point to one of the legal-ish um, exceptions, then you can accept, you can expect that in the event that you choose not to become vaccinated, you may be walked to the door. Now, the interesting thing here, and I, and I do think it's worth uh, mentioning for your listeners, is we have, you know, a little bit of murkiness on the part of the directives that we hear from the government. So at the municipal level, we've heard, um, and both at, also at the provincial level, that, you know, where employees are not going to, are choosing not to be vaccinated, well, we're going to have them go through mandatory training so they can understand the benefits of vaccination. But it's not entirely clear what happens to them if they go through the mandatory training. I mean, are they terminated? Are they placed on a leave? Are they accommodated and put at home remotely? Um, or are they terminated with cause? So it absolutely, as it stands, um, is incumbent on most employees to go ahead and become vaccinated unless they can point to a legal loophole. And it's not going to be easy to do that. Now, are those loopholes, for instance, medical reasons for exemptions or human rights exemptions? So um, a medical reason could very well be a human rights reason. So where an employee, um, can, and, and certainly I'm no doctor, but where an employee, um, you know, receives a medical note or some sort of directive from their treating physician um, outlining a medical condition that they have that would that is not in line or wouldn't um, be in alignment with receiving a vaccination, that could qualify as a legal loophole. Um, the employer then has a couple of choices. Either the employer can say that, okay, we're going to, um, you know, allow you to opt out of this particular policy, and in doing so, we're either going to terminate you and give you a package because there isn't a way um, to keep you employed here anymore safely, or we're going to accommodate you and um, keep you at home working remotely, or we're going to maybe put you in a different section of the office and, you know, implement social distancing for you and provide you with protective gear. It's too early to say uh, what, you know, the various things that employers will be doing in order to accommodate. Some organizations are saying you either show proof of full vaccination or you have regular testing. What is, that sounds like an ish to me when it comes to the legal system. It's going to be a tough one. And I've had um, calls with my clients as well who have said, look, what if we don't want to walk people to the door and we want to do everything in our power to keep morale high? Um, and we don't want, you know, this, this view or this perception in the workplace that if you're exercising your free right to be vaccine free, you should have to lose your job. Um, I think those employers are, are contemplating uh, rapid testing in the workplace. Um, and my job as a lawyer is to walk them through what that might look like, but how effective it is from an administrative standpoint, how painful it is. And keep in mind, there's also privacy legislation that not um, a lot of people are talking about. Um, really what you're doing is keeping, you know, employees' medical information on hand at work, uh, which in and of itself could prove to be problematic. And I think it could possibly be the basis for some sort of litigation in this area again in the coming months. 
So you bring up some very good points. For, for example, how does an employer then intend to access the information to find out whether the employee is immunized? And do they have the right to ask, and would they find it necessary to ask which vaccine was used? There was so much controversy surrounding AstraZeneca and mixing and matching. What are your thoughts on that? Very good question. I think, um, again, it's encroaching on privacy legislation. And again, I think it would be very interesting for your listeners to know that, you know, the starting point um, in workplaces is always that employees have the right to keep their medical information confidential. And you are only to, dis- an employer, you know, if you're unwell, an employer is uh, usually not entitled to your diagnosis, but only your prognosis. Um, and, you know, the employer is not entitled to know what your medical information is, um, you know, unless they require some portion of that medical information to adequately accommodate you in the workplace. So now, I mean, how do you you, you may very well have an employer that says, well, look, not only do I want to be presented with proof that you're double back, but I want to know what vaccine you received. Was it AstraZeneca? Was it AstraZeneca and Moderna? Was it Pfizer? Um, so that area of the law still remains murky. But what is clear is that if employers are um, requiring you to be double back in order to be working, um, it is entirely reasonable for the employer to say, you got to prove it. Um, and in showing proof that you've been double vaxxed, I mean, that is the very medical information that historically employees have been, um, you know, entitled to keep private. So are we going to see claims from certain employees? Are we even going to see class actions where we see a band of employees coming together saying that, no, this is private information and I should not have to share it with my employer? And I think given the global and certainly the national response to the vaccine and the pandemic in general, I think it will be a losing argument, although I could be wrong. And those words always taste like vinegar coming out of my mouth. Hmm. And are we going to see vaccine passports? And with that, will there be legal implications? You know, some people see this as a way to streamline people's ability to move through life if they have a one, you know, one size fits all vaccine passport. What do you what do you think about that? I think we'll see vaccine passports. I think that much is indisputable. Um, Whether or not it happens in the very near future or whether or not we do a tried and tested model in terms of people being just forthcoming about whether they've been vaxxed or not, um, with employers testing and trying, um, you know, rapid testing, accommodations, um, insofar as remote work, I think we are going to do everything in our power. And look, I could be wrong um, as a nation, quite frankly, as, you know, um, in Canadian society when looking at public, public and private sector in terms of workplaces to try and look and see, look, can we do this in a way that's not overly invasive? Um, and ultimately, if the numbers keep going up and that proves to be ineffective, I would not be surprised if, um, you know, vaccine passports came into play. Not at all. There's something called fear of COVID-19, fear of pandemic and refusal to return to work. I know that there are several hundred people in this province who have pleaded their cases to the Ministry of Labour and most have been refused. Most have been told that you don't have a leg to stand on because you're afraid of the pandemic and contracting and you don't want to go back to your position. What have you heard about that? An employer has a legal uh, obligation to accommodate um, a valid medical issue. Um, well, I can certainly appreciate that there is uh, anxiety and discomfort 
around the pandemic in general, your employer has no legal obligation to accommodate your general anxiety. And so if you're in the workplace and your employer has implemented um, social distancing and has implemented providing protective gear to employees, that's when dealing with the virus itself, then your anxiety around the issue would not have been enough to keep you out of the workplace. With the vaccine, again, if you have general anxiety around the issue but your uh, health doesn't prevent you, at least from the perspective of a treating physician uh, to put you, you know, put you into that categorical loophole, then again, an employer has the right to implement their policy. Muniza Sheikh, you are a top labor and employment lawyer. Have you ever seen anything like this? I have never seen anything like this where employers are in a frenzy. No, I've never seen anything like this. What's your advice to, first of all, to employees who are uncomfortable with the idea of having to be double vaccinated or having to show proof of it in order to keep their jobs? My advice would be that if it's important for you to keep your job, um, this is, you know, you may, might think to yourself that, okay, well, I work in the private sector, I work in the public sector, and these are the few named employers who are implementing um, a vaccination policy, a mandatory vaccination policy, and maybe I'll resign and go work somewhere else. I think um, when looking at our Canadian culture uh, and, you know, the rapid movement we've seen in the last a week or so even, I think this is going to become normalized with every workplace implementing a mandatory vaccination policy. And so I would say get vaxxed or be prepared to be walked to the door. And again, it's not that I lack empathy around the anxiety issue with this vaccination. Uh, but, you know, my job, of course, is not to help people with their anxiety. It's to give them the legal facts. What do you say to employers who are struggling with this? I would say that you're within your legal rights uh, to go ahead and implement a mandatory vaccination policy. Um, the mothership has spoken. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the municipal, provincial and federal government has been quite clear that when looking at their workplaces, they are moving to implement um, mandatory vaccination policies absent any human rights reasons or charter reasons. And so if the mothership says it's okay, um, even if the issue is uh, you know, litigated, and of course there is some risk of liability, uh, I would still that you know, adjudicators, trier of facts who are going to hear these cases are going to be hard-pressed to go against the government directive. I could be wrong about that, but I doubt it. Muniza Sheikh, employment lawyer, Levitt Sheikh, LLP, thank you for joining us on the feed. It was my pleasure. After the break, polling from the campaign trail. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. We're at the end of the second week of campaigning ahead of the federal election on September 20th. Polling has gone into overdrive with Canadians being asked who would make the best prime minister, what are the hot button issues, which party could best handle the pandemic recovery, and so much more. One of this country's top pollsters, John Wright, executive vice president, Maru Public Opinion, joins us now on the feed with an overview of week two and what voters are thinking and feeling. Welcome to the feed, John. Good to have you on the show. It's great to be with you, Anne. So how important are polls, especially with a 36-day campaign? 
Well, polls serve two purposes. One is that it gives the public a real sense of where the campaigns are at. And some people say, well, we don't need polls. Well, the reality is that the politicians themselves are looking at polls. Um, and it helps explain to people who don't have access to those party polls what they're seeing. So uh, there will be a lot during this campaign. There have been a lot over the last couple of weeks, but they give us a sense of who's winning, who's not, what the most important issues are for Canadians that we want them to be talking about, um, and pretty much assessing why we are in the state that we are right now. There's even seat models, and that tell us, you know, if you add in all the polls to a, to a machine and it spits out how many seats there are, it'll tell us who's winning and who's not just even giving that formula. A poll that came out a little bit earlier in this week said that if an election were held today, the day that the poll was released in week two, that the Liberals would form a minority government with uh, with just not enough seats to make a majority, which is, some people feel that's why they call this election. What does that tell you this early in the campaign? Well, it tells me that the Prime Minister, who thought he could get a majority government by calling um, an election, you know, at the time that we have, is nowhere close to getting there. In fact, if anything, if you look at the aggregate polls that produce those um, seat numbers, it's actually starting to now give a real edge to the Conservatives in Ontario, which the whoever is going to win the election has to win Ontario right now. It's starting to tilt Tory. So it says to me that a lot of effort has gone into... Uh, calling an election, um, trying to explain for whatever reason we are having one. The Liberals haven't had a key issue that has been able to manifest as to why they're doing what they're doing. But they've actually slid back in. I mean, if you looked at where they were at the end of the last election, it was roughly 156 or 7 seats, if I recall correctly. This would take them down um, below that. And in order to get a majority government, you have to have somewhere between 170 and 180 seats. So we've actually seen Einstein's theory of relativity happen. They've, they've come down significantly over the last two weeks, and that appears that the Tories are actually moving up, and the Tories have actually moved up a little bit, but it's the Liberals who have dropped like a stone, and so it's going to be very tough for them to come back, especially when they've had a very short campaign time frame that they decided to have this election within. Why are Canadians being asked this week in particular, as we say goodbye to week two, who would make the best prime minister? And the response has been quite varied. In fact, one particular poll said that Aaron O'Toole would be the intellectual choice and that he would share the gut preference with Jagmeet Singh. Well, you know, those polls um, get right into the, you know, the fine detail of what a lot of people are not really thinking about at this moment. But it's important to follow those polls because Aaron O'Toole is an unknown quantity. Um, people really across this country don't know what he stands for, who he is, and the campaign's been the only chance to introduce him to the public. So what we've seen is him starting to come up as his profile gets more and more, people are getting to know him, particularly in Ontario, where the, the profile is necessary to get into that band of, of writings around the outside of Toronto, the 905 exchange that you all and your listeners know about that will make the difference in this campaign. So the reason why they're asking those questions is to see whether or not it's starting to penetrate um, the consciousness of voters who don't know who he is, and the answer is it is. So, um, you know, we've still got up until September 20th to go, so there's a long time to go yet, but it's actually making a very positive impression on those who are thinking about 
maybe switching their votes from where they were or deciding where they want to put it. Maru Public Opinion, what is your polling telling you that Canadians are, are feeling are the hot-button issues this week? The most important issue is uh, affordability and the cost of living. We actually took about 25 different issues and posed them to close to 3,000 Canadians and asked, you know, what are the two out of those that you would choose to shape your ballot question? Like, what is driving you to the polls, and what do you want the politicians to have you talk, to have them talk to you about. So affordability is the number one issue. Um, number two would be um, climate change. Number three would be uh, jobs in the economy. And number four would be the deficit. All the others pale in comparison to that. So we saw Jagmeet Singh and uh, Aaron O'Toole come out of the gate talking about affordability issues in the first week. It, didn't t- it took until the end of that week for the Prime Minister to even begin talking about that. He's had a little more of a chance this week. That's where things have shifted a bit. He's talked about housing and affordability when it comes to, um, you know, different issues that you and I deal with in our common life, but also taxation. He believes that we should be taxing banks and insurance companies, which, in fact, is tilting more to try and shore up the left side of the party, try and get NDP voters to come with him. Look, and I think at the end of the day, what's going to happen here is if we see the seats the way they are projected, the prime minister is going to have to not only attack the conservatives like he's done on the health care issue, but he's going to have to appeal to the NDP supporters to say, essentially, look, if you vote for... O'Toole, you're giving, um, sorry, if you vote for Jagmeet Singh, you're effectively giving a vote to Aaron O'Toole. You have to elect me in order to block him from destroying your health care and all the other bad things that they would bring about. And we saw the beginnings of that in this week where the Prime Minister started talking about taxing insurance companies, taxing the the rich. Um, Some of the programs that he's put forward on the ground to try and appeal to the, the NDP. So the struggle for this week and the next week is really about trying to soften up the support, which is significant for Mr. Singh, and start to bring it over to the Liberals, because otherwise there's no way in which they can stop Mr. O'Toole from um, putting together the minority if things keep going the way they are. So I think that's really what happened you know, in the second week. We saw that tilt now to the left to bring in those NDP supporters. And, uh, you know, I think that they'll keep that up for the next week or so. Justin Trudeau, at the very, very beginning of all of this, said, I want to get the approval of Canadians for how we are going to proceed with the pandemic recovery. You didn't mention that just now in what the hot button issues are as they emerge through the end of this week of campaigning. Is that still important to Canadians or are other issues kind of clouding over this that particular part of life? Well, coming out of this pandemic is a theme that the parties are addressing. Clearly, Mr. O'Toole has got his plan, and Jagmeet Singh has his plan, but the, the issue is whether or not Justin Trudeau has performed in such a way to give him the keys for four more years to do that. And there's a couple of polls that we haven't even released um, that I can give you some insight into that. Um, when we ask Canadians whether Justin Trudeau is the right leader for Canadians, in a post-COVID world, in, in the first week of the campaign, that was at 44%, and it's now at 37%. <clears throat> if you ask whether or not it's good to give Justin Trudeau a four-year uninterrupted majority government, that was 40% at the outset of the campaign. It's now 33%, so that's dropped down about seven points for each one of those. And then 
you know, you look at a number of other of these factors and you see them sliding back. To help listeners understand what an election is about in Canada, you do not elect a majority based on a majority of the votes. You elect it based on fractions. You've got to have 37% or more of the vote in order to have a majority government. And right now, both the Conservatives and the Liberals are hovering around 33%. So neither of them are close to that. What you look for in these attitudinal questions is whether or not the Prime Minister has enough numbers in some of these statements to drive him towards that if he uses many of those arguments. What we see here is he's roughly at 37% who would believe that he's the right leader to lead Canadians into the post-COVID world. But that's down seven points in the first period of, of the election. So it's not having the same traction that would be relative to other issues. So He's still got a lot of soft ground at the moment, and I don't think he's yet uh, been able to convince people that he's exactly the person that they want to have on the other side of this election. People, respondents, those that you ask these questions of, are well, many of them are still enjoying the dog days of summer. They're at their cottages. The kids haven't gone back to school mm-hmm. yet. Will there be a shift in sentiment when people get back to what they think is kind of a routine In as we're probably at that point at the end of the third week of the campaign, just weeks ahead of the election, will they? Will there be a change in how they respond and to your questions? The answer is yes. Um, I, I would argue that Canadians are paying attention to this, and you know they may be going about their business, you know, and they're not getting into the details of it. But the fact that we've seen a significant drop in support for the prime minister, ten points over a month, is a lot of people paying attention to something. So that's the first thing. Number two is, you know, coming out of the debates, there's about twenty percent are usually undecided, and that has an impact on them. So they'll see how it's portrayed. They won't watch the debates necessarily, but they'll see how it's portrayed afterwards. And the last thing that I've always found that is so important over the last 30 years of doing this is the long weekend before the vote has a huge impact on people. They have a chance to, to, to think about it. I call it the long, hard stare. And what it is, Ken, is that at some point in that last weekend in the weekend, it's like five politicians walking into a bar and ordering a drink. You know, in the old saloon days, <laughs> they take a drink at the bar and then they take a look around the room. And for most of them, you know, people are just going about looking and doing their own thing and drinking their, their beer and everything else. But there comes a time when they look into the crowd and the crowd looks back at them and they get a hard stare. And it's either going to be, you're okay, continue doing your drink, you're all right, or it's going to be a look from the crowd that says, we're going to step outside for a moment. We've all seen those in the, in the, in the cowboy movies when that all happens. That is what is going to happen either following the debate or on that weekend that's when the resolve will be to make up their minds fully and go to the polls. So I think that we're not anywhere close to that, but I think it's coming. Week three of campaigning begins very shortly. Can you give us, in a nutshell, a sneak peek at a little look at what the polling is going to look like, the questions that are going to be asked, what you're seeing as we move forward in this election campaign? Well, they're obviously going to be focused on the horse race because that's going to produce, you know, a number of different polls, which can then be fed into these aggregate um, seat models. And they're very sophisticated seat models. And just to tell everybody what happens is you're going to get polls that are above the margin of error, below the margin of error, and you might get 10 this coming week. There are ways to feed that all into a model and have it average them out and then come out with the seat models. I think what it's going to do, in is it's going to show us where the Liberals are or not getting traction, where the Tories are, where the NDP are. And the, 
all of a sudden we're going to be able to match those places with where their planes and their buses are actually going. So I would say that the first two weeks of this campaign have been a bit of a phony war with testing out things, doing, you know, talking to different audiences. I think they're going to start to dig in this week. And the most important thing that you and I won't see that much of is that the, um, the social media campaigns will now kick in. The Liberals would have spent the most in the first two weeks in all of the advertising that they were doing, but we weren't seeing it. It was on social media and Facebook. They were calibrating and targeting people who pressed those like buttons and doing those things. The Tories will now come on with theirs this coming week. So I think we're going to see a lot of movement towards areas, and we're going to see a lot on social media to start to target voters in a very specific way. So if you're on Facebook and a lot of people who are older and tend to vote are on Facebook, that's where the movement's going to be this coming week. John Maru, Public Opinion, what is the one question you think should be asked now? Um. I would ask right now whether or not these, any one of the candidates, any one of the parties is representing the issue that you most want to hear about. Um, if it's about your pocketbook or if it's about your health care or it's about anything else, um, that's the most important thing to be listening for. And if you're not hearing it, then you should be demanding at the door if they show up there to get their views. But I, I think that's critical at this stage. The politicians have to define that ballot question for you, and you need to have your voice in it saying, this is what I want to hear about. John Wright, Executive Vice President, Maru Public Opinion, thank you for giving us your time on the feed. Always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. And you as well. Thank you. Tina Cortez is next with an organization supporting Afghans in jeopardy. There were deadly bomb attacks outside Kabul airport on Thursday, but many still hope to be airlifted out after the Taliban takeover and before the August 31st deadline. Joining us next on the feed is Obaid Saeed from the Red Leaf Canadian Resettlement Organization. Obaid, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us from on the ground in Afghanistan? The situation is worsening. Uh, time is running out for many Afghans there who are being targeted. As we know, there have been explosions and uh, the attacks and uh, the surveillance continues to, to worsen. Uh, people are trying to flee, but uh, there's limited uh, ability to really escape from Afghanistan by land, uh, now even more so um, by air. So, you know, we are, we are all hoping for a way uh, to get out and, and just basically to survive at this time. Uh, we, we know we have family members and friends who are down there right now who are doing everything they can to, uh, to get rid of any kinds of documents or any kind of paperwork, anything that shows them uh, having any kind of ties with international Canadian uh, or, Afghan, or the former Afghan government, um, as a lot of them have been working uh, in, in those sectors. So everyone... Um, as we have been uh, seeing, is in a fight-or-flight mode right now. Are you actually able to communicate with your family and friends? Thankfully, yes, we have been able to communicate. We've been uh, talking through WhatsApp and Facebook, uh, trying to uh, maintain a constant communication so we know that they're okay. Um, You know, some are doing a little bit better than others, but for the most part, it's just, uh, you know, everyone is trying to put on a, you know... um, 
a brave face right now. It's it's difficult. It's difficult. And do they know about the August 31st deadline and and what happens after that? Yes, they, they are all very well aware of the 31st deadline. Um, they are watching and listening to the news uh, through social media, Twitter, what have you, um, reports on the ground. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going to be happening after that, but nobody expects it to get any better. Everyone understands that the situation can only get worse once the international community takes his eyes off of Afghanistan, uh, that everyone will be at the mercy of the Taliban, and uh, there is very little mercy that they have. And you said that some people there are trying to hide or destroy any sort of documentation. What would happen if they're found? And how are they found? Are they, you know, knocking down the doors and going into people's homes? Absolutely. So uh, we have uh, multiple reports of armed men barging into people's homes, uh, searching through their house, uh, looking for any kinds of papers, documents that basically have their name affiliated or attached to anything that connects them to uh, a international organization, uh, any of the uh, members of the international community, ISAF, uh, the, the, the government that was there previously, um, anything like that. So they, they have to ensure that these documents are burned or hidden as best as they can. Um, they, they are trying to, uh, but the reality is they also need those same documents to be eligible uh, for, 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 for the refugee program that the Canadian government has, has created, as well as many other governments, as well as uh, the UK. So it's a, it's, a very, it's, it's a game that they have to play, and uh, a lot of people are trying to use you know, all, uh, you know, emails and such and send it out to family members, but I don't want to say too much just in case someone else is you know, listening, but it's, it's, it's that type of a situation. And if there are those who cannot be airlifted to safety, how else will they escape? Well, I mean, we're trying to figure out, figure this out. Um, you know, we, we've understood that uh, the airport in Kandahar has opened up, and we don't know what that will entail, though, what that means for anyone who's trying to leave the country. Um, we understand that there is the possibility of trying to go uh, to the borders, um, you know, to, to Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. However, the situation at those borders are not, not not very hospitable to anyone who's trying to cross, nor the 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 means of getting there uh, very safe. Um, there's there's dozens of checkpoints just within Kabul, and then once you go outside of Kabul, you have the the provinces and the territories there that, you know, it's very unpredictable. It's in the rule of the Taliban now. So if they understand that you are trying to flee and you have been working for uh, another government, uh, then the chances of you making it out are making it out alive are, are not very good. So I, the options are very, uh, very few. Do you know how many Canadians or those who applied to come to Canada have been left stranded? Well, right now, through the um, Red Leaf uh, organization that we have, we have hundreds of, of, of applicants. Uh, there's dozens and dozens of families that have reached out to us. Who We have one who is, is, is sending us video footage of him and his father trying to escape, trying to flee from the Taliban. There's footage of the Taliban in their home, and uh, he has secretly sent this to us through our our online um, social media to try and urge us to, to, to help him. And we're doing everything we can to try and reach out to the federal government and pass these stories on because it is it is real. 
and people's lives are, are at stake here. We need to increase the resources and limit the, the, the red tape that is not allowing people to get out. The 20,000 number on top, the, the number for 20,000 people that they want to take out of Afghanistan is, it's not realistic. It's not enough. There are far more people being targeted who have worked directly for international organizations with the same values and same plans that they shared. It, it, it is, I cannot stress it anymore that there is a need for increased resources and capacity to try and help these people. You mentioned the Red Leaf Canadian Resettlement Organization. What exactly is that and, and what work do you do? It's an organization that was uh, created in part by myself, or my sister, Razmin Saeed, as well as uh, many of our community members in response to the situation uh, that has unfolded in, in the past weeks uh, in, in Kabul. We are trying to be a bridge, uh, a, a resource for Afghans in Afghanistan and those uh, Canadians and Afghans alike here in Canada who are trying to help get family and friends out. Uh, many people are not aware of how to apply, what is, ne- what is needed. Uh, maybe there are language barriers. We are trying to be that resource there to try and push these imminent cases to the Canadian government so it can catch their attention so these people can be helped. Uh, these are people who have worked with uh, Canadian personnel, uh, who have worked with members of the international community, have put their lives on the line just as they have, and we are trying to basically put their cases up front, and we are trying to advocate for the Canadian government to ensure that you know that this this whole process is expedited, and you know rather it not just be limited to twenty thousand people. And is that what the rally in Brampton earlier this week was? It about advocating and raising awareness? Although I think it everyone was. is aware of this issue and what's going on. I mean, I, I feel like in, in today's world, I mean, we're, we're so, you know, we're overwhelmed by all the news and all the information. It is important that, you know, especially during this time, that we do not turn our backs to the people of Afghanistan. We do not turn, back, uh, turn our backs to, to the women and children who are crying for help right now. And it is our attempt to raise the voices of Afghans here and the Afghans back home to try and basically make sure that the, the federal government does not, you know, uh, does not focus its attention elsewhere, at least for the time being, because it, it's so imminent. Time is so limited. And those basically, honestly, uh, it's a cry for help. And, and we're trying to rally the support of everyone who's, who's here with us. Obaid Saeed, thank you for your time. And please keep in touch. Thank you so much. When we come back, the Canadian International Air Show. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Canadian International Air Show will be back in the skies Labor Day weekend. Jim Lang with those details. It's back. Yes, it finally feels like we're getting back to normal. The world-famous, award-winning Canadian International Air Show, this year presented by Lockheed Martin, will be back Saturday, September the 4th, Sunday, September the 5th. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by Lori Duthie, the Executive Director of the world-famous Canadian International Air Show. Lori, it's so nice to talk to you about the air show again. 
I am so grateful to be talking about the air show this year. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's it's hard to believe, but it's been around a long time. Uh, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Snowbirds, known around the world. Um, it is a little bit different, but it's the air show on Labor Day weekend, and it's something. It's almost like a rite of passage in Southern Ontario and Canada. This air show. Absolutely. We've been around for 72 years. This will be our 72nd show this year. So we're just we're thrilled to be back. As you mentioned, that's uh, in large part due to Lockheed Martin, as well as the City of Toronto and the province. Uh, specifically, Minister McLeod was a great support to make sure that we could proceed this year. So we're thrilled to be back. We're, uh, like you say, we're kind of the unofficial end of summer. So uh, we're looking forward to that. We're just two days this year, so we want to make sure people know that it's Saturday and Sunday for this year. That's right. Okay, Saturday and Sunday, September the 4th and 5th, noon to 3. Now, before we get to some of the specific aircraft that uh, plane buffs like myself can get into, uh, it's it's a way to view it uh, and follow current COVID guidelines. There's going to be 14 kilometers of public viewing space between the Humber Bridge and Billy Bishop Airport. So that's a lot of place to check out the air show, but be spaced at the same time. Exactly, yeah. We, you know, due to COVID restrictions, we did eliminate our traditional ticketed exclusive air show zone that we have sort of directly in front of the CNE. That's an area that we would have had clustered people. So we limited that for this year. Like you mentioned, we've got 14 kilometers. The prime viewing space is kind of from the Humber Bridge all the way over to Billy Bishop Airport. Luckily, our stage, quote unquote, is so large in the sky that there's great viewing opportunities from there's uh, lots of green space and parkland all along that uh, 14 kilometers there. So we're hoping people will come down with their families, bring a picnic or some snacks and sit down and socially distance and within their own bubble and enjoy the show for the day. Indeed, thrilled to be speaking to Lori Duthie, the Executive Director of the Canadian International Air Show. You can get more details at CIAS.org. You can follow them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Okay, let's get to some of the planes. Uh, before we get to some of the throwbacks, one of the most state-of-the-art, uh, almost Star Wars-type planes in the world right now is the U.S. Air Force F-35 Lightning Stealth Fighter, and it will be at the air show. It will. This is the first time the F-35 will be displaying their full demonstration. Uh, they've been to Toronto in the past, but it was still a fairly new aircraft and it hadn't been approved to do full demonstration outside of the United States. So we're really excited to be showcasing that for the first time this year. Of course, the uh, aging but still capable CF-18s of the RCAF will be there and the Canadian Forces Snowbirds. And um, it, it is special. I mean, 50 years of the Snowbirds flying around North America, around the world, It's it's it makes you proud. Oh, it certainly does. When you see those red and white tutors come by, it just makes you feel so Canadian. They're beloved snowbirds. They, uh, they've been doing some op inspiration a little bit this year. They've started some more shows out west, and we're just excited to have them back and celebrate their 50th with them this year. And one of the most iconic planes of World War II and one of the planes that helped win the war for the Allies, the P-51 Mustang, will be there. Yeah, we're really excited to have uh, Quicksilver is the name of that aircraft. Come and join us for the very first time. Uh, Scooter, the pilot, puts on an amazing performance, so that's another highlight in our show for sure. Okay, now we just touched on a few planes. What else can we expect for people going down to the lakeshore to check out the air show this year, Lori? Well, we've also got Gord Price and his Yak-50 joining us. Gord is a 79-year-old pilot from Collingwood. He's a retired Air Force pilot and uh, airliner, so we're thrilled to have him join us this year. Most of our additional acts come from active military units, both in Canada and the United States, so those are traditionally announced in the weeks coming up to the show. So if folks want to follow us at cis.org or sign up to become an insider through our website, and they'll get all our performer updates emailed directly to their inbox.
Now, for all the plane buffs out there, I can't recommend that highly enough. CIAS.org. Sign up, as Lori said, because, I mean, it could be a Chinook from Petawawa. It could be a C-17 Globemaster from Trenton. Who knows what it's going to be or something from some of the big American bases. Uh, we'll check it out. It's, it, and, you know, we, we just, just touched upon it earlier. Although the X is in there, the fact that you can go down to the lake and have the picnic and spend the family time and see the air show, it does make it feel like we're getting through this, Lori. It is. It's a little bit of our tradition that we have. Um, we're really going to miss the c &E. My family as well. It's a tradition that we do annu annually. So we're all going to miss the c &E, But they are putting together a virtual c &E for this year. And I know the team. I've been talking to them. They've been working tirelessly on the virtual c &E, but also on the plans for 2022. So we're excited. We know they're going to be back next year, and things will look even more normal next year. But for this year, folks, like you say, can come down. Uh, there's lots of bike paths. There's parking at X Place and Ontario Place and also the Green Pea Parking. Um, we're also having the narration available. That's something new oh. this year. Yeah, folks will, folks will be able to download a free app and listen to the narration from their own personal device. Well, that's you know, a fantastic year. idea, Lori. Thanks. It's one of the unfortunate uh, COVID realities. We have to learn how to pivot through things. So that's, uh, that's another addition that uh, we partnered with Lockheed Martin on, and we're really excited to showcase that. We know that there's been lots of folks that have watched our show over the years from that 14 kilometers but haven't necessarily been able to hear the narration. So, so we're, uh, we're excited to showcase that this year. Now, Laurie, my father was in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was an aircraft technician. And so I grew up around air shows all my life and I had a lifelong love of it. Where did your love for aircraft and air shows come from? Well, actually, uh, my dad was involved in the air show when I was a child, so I've never been anywhere on Labor Day weekend except down at the oh. waterfront watching the air show. Yeah, it's been a tradition. In fact, even last year when we had a virtual air show, I did go down to the waterfront for a day just so I could say <laughs> I've not missed a year down there. But yet my dad certainly inspired that. Uh, I remember sitting down there as a five-year-old watching the snowbirds fly and thinking, I want to be up there one day. It took me a little bit longer, and I didn't, <laughs> didn't make it to the snowbird path, but eventually got my license and... Uh, just, you know, that's why we all, there's about 120 volunteers that put this show together, and it's really for the reason of wanting to continue to inspire youth to look at opportunities in aviation, whether that's as a pilot, as an air traffic controller, as a technician. It's just a great industry to be working in, and uh, we're just happy to continue the tradition and continue to inspire young kids who are looking up at the sky and watching the snowbirds each year. Laurie, I'm geeking it out a little bit because I am an air show buff, and I'm so excited that you guys are back. CIAS.org, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. It is the world-famous Canadian International Air Show presented by Lockheed Martin. Laurie Duffy, thank you so much for taking the time. We can't wait. Saturday, September the 4th, Sunday, September 5th, noon to 3. Get down there and enjoy some family time and get ready for um, the end of summer and beginning of fall. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Laurie. Take care. Okay. Tina Cortez now with the relocation of the Scarborough Coyote and what's next. Earlier this summer, there were multiple sightings of a coyote in Scarborough. In fact, a six-year-old Yorkshire Terrier was attacked. With the neighborhood on high alert, the coyote was finally captured on August 9th. Joining us next with how it all happened is the executive director of the Toronto Wildlife Centre, Natalie Carvonen. Natalie, welcome to the feed. Thank you so much, Tina. Thanks for having me on. What can you tell us about the capture? 
Uh, well, the, the capture of this coyote was actually extremely difficult. Coyotes are very, very hard to catch. Um, but unfortunately, the behavior of this coyote had been dramatically changed by the people who were feeding it, and those feeders would not stop. They continued and continued and continued. Uh, so there was great concern that this, um, the behavior of the coyote might escalate. And so what happened? Where is the coyote now? So the coyote was brought to Toronto Wildlife Centre for um, exam to make sure that he was healthy. He also had to be neutered and microchipped and vaccinated before um, being placed at Aspen Valley Wildlife Sanctuary, and we needed permission from the Ministry of Natural Resources to do all this. Uh, so he is um, actually placed at that sanctuary now in Aspen Valley. It sounds like the residents had something to do with the behaviour of the coyote. Is that the case here? Well, Toronto Wildlife Centre has been open for over 28 years, and, and I can tell you every single situation we've dealt with in over 28 years where there have been concerns about a coyote's behaviour are always linked to people feeding the coyotes. And so in this case, you know, this coyote was fed a lot and fed regularly and hand-fed, you know, by people. So what that does is it's, it's very confusing for a wild animal. It makes the coyote think that People are a source of food. People are a source of getting a treat or a handout. And so it means that coyotes might follow someone or might approach someone, uh, anticipating that they're going to be rewarded. But not everybody appreciates that kind of behavior from a wild animal, of course. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice to residents? Seems rather obvious. <laughs> Yes, I mean, certainly obvious the advice would be to never feed a coyote, and for for that matter, wild animals in general. Um, if people are concerned about other wild animals in their neighborhood, say birds or something, squirrels, they can always plant native plants or berry bushes, things like that, to provide natural food sources. Uh, but handouts of food to wild animals uh, can cause a lot of problems. So in this particular case, you were quoted as saying this was a sad situation. Why did you say that? Well, I mean, this, it wasn't this coyote's fault that he was given all this feeding and that, that his behavior changed as a result. But now uh, a perfectly normal, healthy coyote has been essentially taken from the wild and his whole future as a wild animal has been taken away from him because his behavior was changed. So for us, that is very sad. I mean, it is very fortunate that Aspen Valley um, Wildlife Sanctuary had a good uh, placement situation for him, and I'm sure they will do the best they possibly can to keep him uh, comfortable and, and content. But it's still not the same as being wild and free and being able to raise babies and do all the normal things that a wild coyote would do. And it seems we're seeing coyotes in our own neighborhoods across Toronto, the GTA, here in York Region. What do we do if we encounter a coyote? Well, I think for the most part, you could just do nothing. You know, I mean, coyotes, a normal coyote wants nothing to do with people. Um, so you could just enjoy seeing the coyote and then just continue on your way. Um, but if you are nervous about the coyote, you can just act big and scary. So wave your hands around, make noise. Um, that should just scare the coyote off. Um, there is a bit of a different dynamic if you're walking a small pet, a, you know, a very small pet, because the coyote doesn't understand that it's okay to eat a rabbit or a, a groundhog, um, but not okay to eat a small dog. It's, it's not something that a coyote's ever been taught. Um, so if you have a small pet with you, best to keep it close by if you see a coyote or, or even just pick it up and slowly walk home. You mentioned that the Toronto Wildlife Centre has been around for more than 28 years. Tell us a little bit about your work. 
Yeah, we've been open every single day since March of 1993, helping the community with wildlife issues. So we, we have a number of core programs. We have a wildlife hotline that handles anywhere up to 50,000 phone calls a year now, actually, about all kinds of wildlife issues. Uh, we have a wildlife rescue program that's very specialized and does very difficult and challenging rescues of wild animals. And then we have a wildlife hospital and rehabilitation program. We admit over 5,000 sick, injured, and orphaned wild animals, representing almost 300 different species um, every year. And then um, last but not least, we do a lot of public education about wildlife issues. We do feel it's very important to help people feel comfortable with the wild animals in their neighborhoods and understand how they can better coexist with them. And of course, that helps the animals too. If our listeners want more information about TWC, where can they find it? We have a website, torontowildlifecenter.com, and then we are very active on social media, and you'll, you'll find those connections on our website too. And I, I might add as well that we are a charity. We run entirely on donations. We have a lot of volunteers helping us too, um, and we have a core group of, of skilled staff, of course, but we are not a government-funded agency. Natalie Carvonin, Executive Director of the Toronto Wildlife Centre, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thanks so much, Tina. Our last stop, Richmond Hill, and a celebration of multiculturalism. Monique Dennison is the Executive Director for the Richmond Hill Board of Trade. Monique, welcome to the Feed News Magazine. Thank you, Tina. Before we chat about today's festival, tell us about the Board of Trade. What exactly is the role of the Board in the city? Okay, the Richmond Hill Board of Trade exists to help members succeed and build a better Richmond Hill business community. We advocate on behalf of our members to all three levels of government. We host a variety of events to engage our community, and we also plan networking events. So I guess it goes without saying that this past 18 months of the pandemic have been particularly difficult for businesses and small businesses. Yes, it has been, Tina. But what we've done, we've pivoted and we've used a variety of online portals, uh, Zoom and um, among others. So we still had our community engaged. That's great. Now, so tell us about today's festival. What's going on? Today's festival is our Multicultural Diversity and Business Festival. It's the first festival of this kind that we've put off in Richmond Hill. We really want to engage our community. Uh, we want them to learn of authentic Richmond Hill. It's a free event to the public, and the first 200 attendees will receive a goodie bag. There will be food trucks, entertainment, businesses, uh, shows, so it's going to be really, really, really good. So it's a Multicultural Diversity and Business Festival. Where is it taking place? It's going to be at the Richmond Hill Board of Trade uh, building, which is our historic building at 376 Church Street South, Richmond Hill. And what time can people attend? It starts at 12 p.m. to 5 p.m., and there will be performances and uh, show times. So there's going to be a Chinese lion dance, steel pan, creole dances, martial art training, and a Bangra event to end it all off. So why do you think this event is so important right now? It's really 
great to bring the community together after everything that has happened with the pandemic. Uh, you know, people need to get out. They need to uh, be engaged, be a part of the community, learn of each other's cultures, and just have a really good time. What types of businesses will be present at the festival? There's going to be a variety of businesses. There's going to be uh, food trucks. There's going to be an ice cream truck. There's going to be an insurance company. There's going to be uh, dance studios. There's going to be food. There's going to be cakes, books, and a lot of, a lot of businesses that represent our community. And you said the key words a little bit earlier. You said it's free to the public, right? So we want to encourage the public to come on out and have a good time and get to know these businesses in their own community. Yes, Tina. They will have a really good time. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? So uh, we, the www.rhbot.ca, there will be a banner ad with a click-through. You can also find us on Facebook at Richmond Hill BOT or on Eventbrite. Terrific. And one more time, Monique, where is this afternoon's festival taking place? It's from 12 till 5, right? Yes, it is. And one more time, where is it? 376 Church Street South in Richmond Hill. Terrific. Have a great day. Thank you, Tina. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.